Welcome to the ninth webinar in 2015-2016 MGHS and HPCL Interprofessional Webinar Series in Palliative Care. Today's topic is Oncologic Emergencies for the Palliative Care Specialist. I'm Seema Varma. I'm a Hospice Medical Director with MGHS. I also practice hematology and oncology with Medical Associates of Marlborough. Financial disclosures, non-current. So the objectives of today's talk are to be able to recognize oncologic emergencies commonly encountered in the palliative care setting, understand the diagnostic approaches and management options available to us, understand the benefits and burdens of proposed treatments in context with the prognosis of every individual patient and goals of care. So this talk will be running through a series of cases. Each case will legal lead us into an oncologic emergency, and we'll discuss each emergency further. So our first case is a 65-year-old female with history of metastatic breast cancer, with bone mets and liver mets, and history of hypertension, who presents with chief complaint of back pain for the last three weeks. She took oxycodone and Tylenol for three weeks for back pain with no relief. Now the pain has started radiating down the right lower extremity and is also associated with tingling and numbness. Examination is within normal limits except for pain in the right leg with straight leg raising test. So this is a classic presentation for malignant spinal cord compression. In the picture you see MRI image of a patient with spinal cord compression, tumor extending and compressing the fecal sac of the spinal cord. So malignant spinal cord compression usually results from extension from spinal bony mats that extend and compress the fecal sac of the spinal cord. It is a frequent complication of malignancy, and pain is the most common presenting symptom. It is relatively common that 2.5 to 5% of cancer patients present with malignant spinal cord compression. Most commonly seen with solid tumors, most common tumors are breast, lung, and prostate cancer. Also can be seen with renal cancers, myelomas, and lymphomas. Most of the incidences are located in the thoracic spine. 70% of malignant spinal cord compression is noted to be in the thoracic spine, 20% in the lumbar spine, and 10% in the cervical spine. Multiple levels are involved in about a third of the patients. So back pain is the most common initial presenting symptom for malignant spinal cord compression. 90% of the patients have back pain, and pain usually precedes any neurological symptoms. Early recognition leads to better outcomes. Any delay in diagnosis of malignant spinal cord compression can lead to permanent neurologic damage, paralysis, and incontinence. Median time from symptoms to diagnosis has been shown to be about two months. So that's a big lag. A strong level of suspicion is necessary to identify and make an early diagnosis. As mentioned, any delay can lead to permanent paralysis, so early diagnosis is essential for malignant spinal cord compression. So pain is the most common presenting symptom. It tends to be very well localized along the spine. Eventually can become radicular in nature with radiation associated with neuropathic symptoms, which can be motor, sensory, or autonomic in nature. Pain can worsen with movement, straining, or lying supine. Motor deficits can include weakness of upper extremities or lower extremities, gait disturbances. Sensory deficits can include paresthesias, such as tingling or numbness, 
Autonomic deficits can include urinary detention, constipation, or incontinence. MRI is the gold standard for diagnosis of malignant spinal cord compression. It has 95% sensitivity and 97% specificity for diagnosis of malignant spinal cord compression. In rare cases where MRI is contraindicated due to presence of prosthetic devices or any other reason, CT myelography is available as an alternate uh, diagnostic approach. Although CT myelography tends to be, it, it's, it's an invasive procedure. It requires presence of a normal coagulation profile and presence of normal number functions, but it's an alternative available when MRI is contraindicated. Multiple spinal meds are found in about a third of the patients, so consider imaging the entire spine when making a diagnosis. For treatment of malignant spinal cord compression, immediate approach includes pain control and pharmacological treatment with corticosteroids. Treatment should be started as soon as diagnosis is made or suspected, and then institute more definitive treatment, which can be either surgery or radiation. Corticosteroids are the standard mainstay of initial pharmacological management in addition to pain medications. They reduce any peritumeral edema and, and reduce the compression of the spinal cord. Steroids help restore the neurologic function and prevent permanent neurologic damage. As more definitive treatment with radiation or surgery is subsequently instituted, steroids can be tapered off. The initial dose of steroids in the setting of malignant spinal cord compression has not been established. There are two sets of data, one with 10 to 16 milligrams per day of corticosteroids in divided doses, another with 96 to 100 milligrams per day of corticosteroids. Usually that's a methasone. Three trials and one meta-analysis are available. Most of these have indicated that higher initial doses of steroids are associated with a trend towards better outcomes, but they are also associated with a higher incidence of serious adverse events, such as perforated gastric ulcers, psychosis, and death from infections. There have been smaller studies studying the lower doses and have shown equivalence of lower doses to higher doses, but no randomized controlled data exists to support the use of lower doses. So essentially, in absence of clear data, clinician has the choice of dexamethasone dose in the initial treatment of malignant spinal cord compression. Most clinicians tend to base the initial dose on the degree of neurologic impairment. And subsequently, more definitive treatment can be instituted, which usually is radiation therapy. Uh, for patients who are not surgical candidates, in the hospice and palliative care setting, very few patients meet the criteria for being a surgical candidate. So most often, the definitive treatment is radiation treatment. Radiation has shown benefits in quality of life, improved ambulation, neurological status, and reduced pain in malignant spinal cord compression. The standard radiation treatment includes 10 treatments, a couple of minutes a day, over a span of 10 days. For patients with relatively short life expectancy, so all our hospice patients and most palliative care patients with a life expectancy of less than six months, a brief course of radiation, so only one or two treatments, affords similar symptom palliation as a protracted course of 10 treatments. Studies have shown a brief course, so a single treatment or two treatments, to be equally effective in enhancing ambulation, reducing pain, and promoting neurologic recovery. 
The only downside for a brief uh, treatment is increased incidence of local tumor recurrence, which may not be a significant clinical concern in a hospice and palliative care patients. So this is a very important piece of data wherein one outpatient radiation treatment could provide effective symptom palliation for patients with malignant spinal cord compression. Some of the radiosensitive tumors include breast cancer, myeloma, prostate cancers, lymphomas, and lung cancers. Surgery for definitive treatment of malignant spinal cord compression has clearly shown to be superior to radiation alone. Surgery with a combination of post-op radiation is the standard in patients who meet criteria for surgical intervention. So in the palliative care and hospice setting, that would be a small fraction of patients, but if they meet criteria, surgery is the preferred treatment followed by radiation. Patient criteria for being, a, being eligible for surgery include reasonable life expectancy of at least more than three months, reasonable performance status, and neurologic damage should be less than 48 hours, beyond which it is rarely reversible. Tumor should be involving a single area and amenable to surgery. And other, other situations where surgery can be considered are for non-radiosensitive tumors and also in cases of unstable spine, fractures, or bony compressions. And surgery always needs to be followed by post-op radiation. And finally, chemotherapy can be used as a first-line treatment for malignant spinal cord compression in select group of tumors which are extremely chemosensitive, such as lymphomas and germ cell tumors. One or two courses of chemo could palliate symptoms and provide symptomatic relief. Recovery from spinal cord compression depends on the condition and presentation. If ambulatory, 79% remain ambulatory. If paraplegic, 21% become ambulatory. If paralyzed, only 6% become ambulatory. So early diagnosis is associated with better outcomes. And treatment depends on patient condition, goals of care, prognosis, and life expectancy. So this malignant spinal cord compression, we will move on to our second case. Our second case is a 62-year-old male with history of stage 4 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma who has been admitted to the inpatient hospice unit with chief complaint of weakness, nausea, thirst, and dizziness, and increased urination. Comorbid condition includes congestive heart failure. Initial laboratory data obtained show BUN level of 42 milligrams per deciliter. Serum creatinine is 1.6 milligrams per deciliter. Total serum calcium level is 13.4 milligrams per deciliter. And serum albumin is 3 grams per deciliter. So correcting the total serum calcium level for a 1 gram deficit in serum albumin, the corrected serum calcium level here is 14.2 milligrams per deciliter. So this is a very high serum calcium level, but the upper limit of serum calcium usually is 10.5 milligrams per deciliter. So what is the most appropriate initial treatment? Malignant hypercalcemia. It occurs in about 30% of cancer patients, so it is quite common, and it carries a poor prognosis. Life expectancy is less than six months once malignant hypercalcemia is diagnosed, but more than half of those patients will die within 30 days of diagnosis. It carries a very poor prognosis. Most commonly seen with breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, myelomas, lymphomas, and head and neck cancers. 
Malignant hypercalcemia can occur by two mechanisms. The most common mechanism for malignant hypercalcemia is humoral hypercalcemia of malignancy, which is responsible for 80% of cases of hypercalcemia. In this mechanism, tumor-secreted substances, such as parathormone-related peptide or vitamin D analogs, usually cause the hypercalcemia. Most commonly secreted substance by tumors is parathormone-related peptide. It causes increased bone resorption of calcium and renal tubular reabsorption of calcium and leads to serum hypercalcemia. The most common histology to secrete parathormone-related peptide are squamous cell malignancies. So squamous cell cancers of any origin are very notorious to secrete parathormone-related peptide and cause serum hypercalcemia. They can be of head and neck origin, lung origin, skin, vulvar, or vaginal origin. Other tumors that can secrete parathormone-related peptide include red renal cell cancers, bladder cancer, breast, ovarian cancers, lymphomas, and neuroendocrine tumors. The second most common substance secreted by malignant cells includes 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, which is a vitamin D analog and causes increased intestinal absorption of calcium and serum hypercalcemia. This is the most common mechanism for hematologic malignancies to cause hypercalcemia. Almost all Hodgkin's lymphomas secrete vitamin D and about a third of non-Hodgkin's lymphomas secrete vitamin D and cause hypercalcemia via this mechanism. The second less common mechanism for causing hypercalcemia is local bone destruction via lytic bone mass. This mechanism is responsible for about 20% of cases of hypercalcemia, commonly seen in breast and multiple myeloma. With multiple myeloma, all bone lesions are lytic bone lesions, and hypercalcemia is very common, can at times be the initial presenting symptom for multiple myeloma. In cases of breast cancer, 60% of bone mats with breast cancer tend to be sclerotic in nature. About 40% tend to be lytic and can be associated with serum hypercalcemia by causing local bone destruction. Presenting symptoms for hypercalcemia can be very nonspecific and usually symptoms are severe as serum calcium levels get higher. Initial presenting symptoms can include anorexia, nausea, constipation, Polyuria and polydipsia can be seen with higher levels of calcium. And with severe hypercalcemia, altered mental status, lethargy, confusion, stupor, and coma can be seen. So once a diagnosis is made with initial labs, treatment should be instituted as early as possible. The first step in treat treating is aggressive hydration. Begin normal saline, one to two liters over one to two, over two to four hours. Hydration should always be the first initial step in managing hypercalcemia. Subsequent to the hydration, institute calciuresis with diuretics such as furosemide at a dose of 20 to 40 milligrams IV so that calcium can be excreted by other kidneys. But always remember hydration has to be first and then follow with calciuresis. Discontinue any medications that could be causing a high calcium level. And then finally, we institute more definitive treatment, which is the standard is bisphosphonates for management of malignant hypercalcemia. Bisphosphonates inhibit the bone resorption of calcium. They gradually decrease the serum calcium levels, and the effect stays over three to four weeks. So only one treatment is needed every month. The most commonly used medications are pamidronate and zoledronate.
Famitronic can be used at, used at doses of 60 to 90 milligrams, IV infusion over two hours, and can be repeated every three to four weeks. Zolitronic so can be used as four milligram infusion given IV over 15 minutes and is repeated every four weeks. These medications are very effective in maintaining low serum calcium levels, can be administered in an outpatient setting or even at patient's home. Especially zoledronic acid is very convenient infusion just over 15 minutes and can be administered at home every month to maintain low serum calcium and provide symptomatic palliation for patients with recurrent hypercalcemia. Second line treatment for hypercalcemia includes calcitonin. Calcitonin can be administered intramuscular or subcutaneous. It quickly lowers the serum calcium level within minutes. However, the effect is very short-lived and frequent dosing is required. It is a useful alternative to hydration and calciuresis in the acute setting. A very effective adjunct to treatment of malignant hypercalcemia are corticosteroids, especially when hypercalcemia is associated with hematologic malignancies. Corticosteroids reduce the elevated levels of vitamin D associated with hematologic malignancies, and they also have a direct anti-tumor effect for hematologic malignancies. So whenever hypercalcemia is associated with presence of hematologic malignancies such as lymphomas or myelomas, in addition to the initial management of hydration and calciuresis, followed by definitive management of bisphosphonates, corticosteroids offer a very useful adjunct to treatment and should always be instituted in the treatment algorithm. So with that, we finish management of malignant hypercalcemia. We'll move on to our third case, which is a 59-year-old female with recurrent stage 4 ovarian cancer and peritoneal carcinomatosis. She presents with a chief complaint of nausea, vomiting, colicky abdominal pain, and distension for the past two days. Physical examination reveals diffuse distension of the abdomen and diffuse discomfort to palpation. Abdominal radiography taken in supine and standing position documents dilated loops of bowel with multiple air fluid levels. This is malignant bowel obstruction. The plain radiograph taken here shows multiple dilated small bowel loops and air fluid levels. Malignant bowel obstruction is a common complication of gastrointestinal and ovarian cancers. It is a poor prognostic indicator. Average life expectancy is about 80 days once malignant bowel obstruction has been diagnosed. Obstruction usually leads to local inflammation, the distension of the proximal bowel, which causes the pain, and accumulation of intestinal fluids, gases, and solids, which causes nausea and vomiting. So symptoms of malignant bowel obstruction are produced by distension and secretion and include nausea, vomiting, and pain. Small bowel is more commonly involved in large bowel. 61% of malignant bowel obstructions are seen in the small bowel versus 33% in the large bowel. Causes of malignant bowel obstruction could be related directly to the malignancy so which would mean direct tumor invasion causing bowel obstruction, or extrinsic compression from the tumor compressing on the bowel, or altered motility of the bowel from diffuse dissemination of the tumor within the abdominal cavity. 
Malignant bowel obstruction can also be caused by complications of previous treatment, such as surgical adhesions from previous surgery, radiation fibrosis, or in use of previous use of intraperitoneal chemo causing adhesions and scarring in the abdominal cavity. Most common presenting symptom is abdominal pain, which can be constant, cramping or colicky in nature, abdominal distension, nausea and vomiting. Nausea and vomiting can vary in intensity based on the level of obstruction. So if the obstruction is high in the gut at the duodenal level or high small bowel, nausea vomiting can occur early in the course of symptoms, uh, early in the course of symptom presentation and can largely contain various material. If bowel obstruction is more distal, nausea vomiting may not occur until late in the course and can largely contain fecaloid material. It also depends on the degree of compromise of bowel patency. Nausea vomiting are more severe with complete obstruction. Also in cases of complete obstruction, there is absence of feces and flatus. With partial obstruction, diarrhea can be seen. Diagnosis of malignant bowel obstruction is established with plain abdominal radiographs or abdominal series. CAT scan is available if additional information is desired. Classic finding on abdominal radiograph or abdominal series is the triad. Triad of dilated small bowel loops, more than 3 centimeters in diameter, air fluid levels on upright forms, and paucity of air in the colon. So we'll go back to the picture we initially saw in the presentation. It's so a plain radiograph of a patient with malignant bowel obstruction showing dilated small bowel loops, multiple air fluid levels, and paucity of air in the colon. That's a classic triad of, uh, for diagnosis. Sensitivity of plain radiographs is 70 to 80 percent. So it's very helpful in establishing diagnosis. Specificity is low because ileus and colonic obstruction can have similar appearing findings. However, plain films remain an important study because of their widespread availability and low cost. CAT scan can be done if additional information is required, especially for treatment planning. Obstruction findings on a CAT scan include discrete transition zone with dilation proximally and decompression distally. Intraluminal contrast does not pass beyond the transition zone, and colon will contain little gas or fluid. This is a picture of colonic obstruction where you see dilated ascending, transverse, and descending colon. So for treatment of malignant bowel obstruction, your intervention should be based on the predicted prognosis for every individual patient, condition of that patient, and goals of care. First, establish the diagnosis and the cause of obstruction. Whether it's single or multiple sites of obstruction, is it in the large bowel or the small bowel? partial or complete obstruction. Subsequently, treatment needs to be individualized for every patient. If patient has a good performance status and the tumor is localized, surgery can be considered. However, in most hospice and palliative care patients, they would not meet surgical criteria, but in a fraction of patients who do, surgery would be the most preferable treatment. In cases of inoperable treatment, consider stenting or venting gastrostomies. And for end stage, where they would not be eligible for endoscopic treatment either, medical management is available. Most hospice and palliative care patients would fall into the category of medical management for symptomatic palliation. For the fraction of patients who would meet criteria for surgery, operative approaches include resection, 
bypass or diversion. So the tumor, if it's local, local side, one side can be resected, or alternatively, there could be a bypass or diversion for intestinal contents. Contraindications for surgery include previous surgery with multiple adhesions, diffuse intra-abdominal spread of the tumor. It could be diffuse intra-abdominal tumor or peritoneal carcinomatosis or mental meds, ascites, and patient factors such as limited life expectancy, poor nutritional status, poor performance status. Surgical intervention also carries significant perioperative mortality and morbidity. So very few patients in a hospice and palliative care world would meet surgical criteria. Most patients would be, can be, would be able to undergo endoscopic treatment for malignant bowel obstruction if they have a reasonable performance status. Endoscopic management is less invasive, allows for shorter lengths of stay, and may avoid perioperative morbidity. It is useful for patients with short-term prognosis and those with localized tumors. In cases of localized tumors, self-expanding metal stents can be endoscopically inserted at the site of obstruction, and they dilate and relieve the obstruction, allowing the passage of intestinal contents. Initial technical success for self-expanding metal stents is more than 90%. Mortality is less than 1%. Clinical success with resolution of symptoms of nausea and vomiting is 75%. So it's reasonable improvement in symptoms with a simple endoscopic insertion of metal stent. Studies also show this, to be a, a, this approach to be cost-effective with reduced need for surgery. In cases where tumor is more diffuse and stent placement is not an option, gastric venting with a percutaneously placed gastrostomy tube, PEC tube, is also provides rapid and safe method of achieving symptomatic relief. Diverting ileostomies and colostomies can also be considered for more distal obstructions. Complications of the stent include stent obstruction by foot, stent migration, and stent perforation. Finally, medical management for malignant bowel obstruction would be the most, um, more, more large number of hospice and palliative care patients would meet the criteria for medical management alone. Pharmacologic symptomatic of treatment in inoperable patients consists of decompression of the intestine and hydration along with a combination of pain medications and antispasmodics, antiemetics, and drugs to control bowel secretions. Commonly employed antiemetics for management of malignant bowel obstruction include neuroleptics such as haloperidol, metoclopramide, prochlorperazine, chlorpromazine, 5-HT3 receptor antagonists such as ondansetron and granisetron, benzodiazepines, ativan. To reduce gastrointestinal secretions, drugs that can be used include glycopyrrolate, scopolamine, hyoceamine, and somatostatin analog, octreotide. Octreotide can be given in divided doses every eight hours or can be given as a continuous drip, 10 to 20 micrograms per hour, intravenous or subcutaneous drip. Corticosteroids are a very useful agent in management of malignant small bowel obstruction. They have multiple um, effects in malignant small bowel obstruction, including reducing peritumoral edema, reducing inflammation. They are also anti-secretory, analgesic, and anti-emetic. They are a very useful adjunct and dexamethasone at a dose of 4 to 16 milligrams subcutaneous daily can be used to manage malignant bowel obstruction in addition to other approaches to management. So this I'm going to move on to our fourth case. Case number four is a 63-year-old male with history of lung cancer. 
who complains of frequent headaches and feeling of fullness. He complains of worsening shortness of breath. On examination, is found to have several dilated chest veins and jugular venous distension, facial plethora and swelling. This is a picture you see, which is of the findings on examination. What is the most appropriate management? This is classic presentation for superior vena cava syndrome. Superior vena cava syndrome results from obstruction of the superior vena cava, which interrupts the venous blood return from head, upper limb, and thorax to the right atrium. 90% of the causes for superior vena cava syndrome are malignant, malignancy associated. Most common malignancies that lead to superior vena cava syndrome include lung cancer, lymphomas, and other metastatic malignancies to the superior or anterior mediastinum, including breast, germ cell, and GI cancers. 10% of cases of SVC syndrome can be caused by non-malignant causes such as intraluminal thrombus, indwelling catheters are commonly associated with SVC syndrome, fibrosing mediastinitis, radiation fibrosis, or aortic aneurysm that could be pressing on the superior vena cava. Common presenting symptoms of SVC syndrome include dyspnea, cough, facial swelling, arm swelling, chest pain, and with increase in intracranial pressures, dizziness, headache, lethargy, and syncope can be seen. Symptoms usually progress over a period of weeks to months gradually. On examination, signs of superior vena cava syndrome include thoracic and neck ring distension, facial edema, arm edema, cyanosis facial plethora, and enlarged neck circumference. Severe cases that are associated with nerve compression can be associated with Horner's syndrome and vocal cord paralysis. The most effective way to establish diagnosis for superior vena cava syndrome is a plain chest x-ray. Plain chest x-ray provides simple information, including widening of the superior mediastinum. Tumors can be seen in the superior mediastinum, associated pulmonary lesions can be seen, and pleural effusion. It usually by itself is adequate to establish a diagnosis. Contrast-enhanced CAT scan is available in case additional information is needed and also for treatment planning. So if you need additional information on location of the compression, extent of the compression and mechanism of occlusion, or for guidance for radiation treatment, contrast-enhanced CCT can be employed. This is a chest x-ray of a patient with superior vena cava syndrome. You can see the tumor in the superior mediastinum, which is likely compressing the SVC, and it is also deviating the trachea. Treatment should be instituted as soon as the diagnosis is suspected or made. General measures for treatment of superior vena cava syndrome include elevating the head of bed to reduce the pressures, avoid any venipunctures in the upper extremities. Corticosteroids are the mainstay for initial pharmacological treatment. Dexamethasone is commonly used at doses of 16 mg divided into three or four doses daily given oral or IV. Steroids reduce peritumidal edema and decompress the superior vena cava, especially when it's associated with hematologic malignancies such as lymphomas. Steroids have a direct anti-tumor effect in lymphomas that also aids decompression of the superior vena cava. 
Diuretics such as furosemide are commonly used in treatment of superior vena cava syndrome, however clinically have not shown to be of benefit. Subsequently, specific measures for treatment of superior vena cava can be instituted. Specific measures for treatment include radiation therapy, chemotherapy, or endovascular stenting is also available. Interdisciplinary team needs to consult with the oncologist, discuss with specific patients' prognosis, goals of care, overall condition, and balance the benefits and burdens of any proposed treatments for optimal outcomes. Definitive treatment, or standard definitive treatment for superior vena cava syndrome is radiation therapy. Radiation to the tumor site or the site of compression provides quick relief of symptoms within 72 hours. It palliates symptoms in about 70% of patients with bronchogenic cancer and in 95% of patients with lymphoma. Radiation is generally very well tolerated with minimal side effects. Optimal dose has not been established. So similar to malignant spinal cord compression, wherein the standard treatment is about 10 fractions, but in hospice and palliative care patients, one or two treatments have shown to be equally effective in palliation of symptoms. In case of superior vena cava syndrome, one to two treatments could be adequate and adequate enough for symptom palliation. Optimal dose fraction has not been studied, but there are smaller studies showing that one treatment of radiation could provide significant symptom palliation in patients with superior vena cava syndrome towards end of life. And finally, chemotherapy is a preferable mode for definitive treatment for very chemosensitive tumors such as small cell cancers or lymphomas. One to two courses of chemotherapy could be adequate enough to provide symptom palliation in this setting. Endovascular therapies such as wire stents to expand the superior vena cava can provide rapid symptomatic relief within few days in most of the patients. It is an endoscopic procedure, quick outpatient procedure that can provide symptomatic relief. It should be considered in care with in patients with acute and severe symptoms, which require immediate management, and also with patients with reduced life expectancy where more definitive treatments such as radiation or chemo may not be feasible. In cases of recurrent obstruction, endovascular stents are the mainstay of treatment. Finally, I have a few slides in acute terminal hemorrhage. Acute terminal hemorrhage occurs in 6 to 14 percent of patients with advanced cancer. Patients at risk include those with head and neck cancers, fungating pelvic or surface tumors, pre-existing bleeding disorders such as thrombocytopenia, coagulopathies, or patients who have received medications that could increase their risk of bleeding such as anticoagulants, coumarin or warfarin, antiplatelet agents such as aspirin, clopidogrel or other antiplatelet agents, or anti-VEGF agents. Anti-VEGF agents are um, notorious for causing bleeding and, a part, and are a part of most chemotherapy regimens. Most common anti-VEGF agents are bevacizumab and regorafenib. If patients have received these agents in the preceding few weeks before presentation, they have a very high risk of bleeding. VEGF stands for vascular endothelium growth factor. For management of acute terminal hemorrhage, institute volume replacement immediately. The first step should be volume replacement. Apply pressure with dark towels. In the home setting, drugs that can be used to control bleeding include antifibrinolytic agents, 
just aminocaproic acid and tranexamic acid. Aminocaproic acid can be given orally at divided doses of one gram four times a day and is very effective antifibrinolytic agent in controlling bleeding. Alternative is tranexamic acid, which can be given intravenous or subcute in divided doses two or three times a day. Other options include topical epinephrine, which can be applied topically to the sites of bleeding, or topical caraphate. In the inpatient setting or inpatient GIP setting, the subcute epinephrine can be used as a continuous infusion or one-time dose to, to control bleeding. Coagulopathies can be corrected by either fresh frozen plasma transfusion or platelet transfusions. If the bleeding is acute or rapid and cannot be controlled with above methods, medications can be given to induce terminal sedation. Some medications that can be used are midazolam, 2.5 to 5 milligrams sub-Q, PRN titrated to effect. Valium can be used as a 10 milligram rectal suppository, or phenobarbital, IV, IM, or sub-Q can be given as a in divided doses or continuous drug. And continuously educate and reassure the family. So in conclusion, oncologic emergencies are not infrequently encountered in the palliative care setting. We do not, we may not make an early diagnosis, but it is essential to identify and diagnose early and hence maintain a high index of suspicion. Medical decision making should be based on individual patient's prognosis and goals of care and continuously educate the patient and family. So with that, we will move on to our question and answer session. So I have a question here. What is the mechanism of action of calcitonin? Since we discussed in the management of malignant hypercalcemia, calcitonin is a second-line therapy that's available and is, has very quick effect. It reduces the levels of sodium calcium over a few minutes, and, um, but the effect is very short-lived and several doses need to be repeated. It works by inhibiting osteoclastic bone resorption and, and reducing sodium calcium levels. Another question I have here is about anti-VEGF agents. So VEGF stands for vascular endothelial growth factor receptor. And anti-VEGF agents are agents that um, inhibit vascular endothelial growth and are associated with a significant increase in the risk of bleeding. These agents are commonly employed as a part of chemotherapy regimen. And their effect can last for about four to six weeks. So if patients have received any of these agents in the preceding month or two, they have a very high risk of bleeding, especially if they have superficial fungating tumors or pelvic tumors. There are no, um, we do not have any agents that could counteract the bleeding risk from these agents. Most common um, treatment approaches that are instituted include the standard approaches that we discussed, fresh frozen plasma, platelets, um, or just use of antifibrinolytic agents, tranexamic acid, aminocaproic acid, or uh, topical or subcutaneous epinephrine or caraphate. So the next question I have is, how would you manage a hospice patient with Venacava syndrome who did not want to leave the home for inpatient? So superior Venacava syndrome can be managed at home effectively with corticosteroids. We can begin corticosteroids dexamethasone at a dose of 16 milligrams in divided doses, which will reduce the peritumoral edema and decompress the superior vena cava. Elevate the head of bed and uh, avoid any venipunctures in the upper extremities. 
If the patient is willing to undergo outpatient radiation, even one or one fraction, if they're willing to leave the home just for an hour to get one fraction of radiation, that could provide some effective symptomatic palliation. Um, if not, then just corticosteroids, maybe higher doses to palliate symptoms would be the way to manage. Also, chemotherapy, just one course or two courses could be very effective symptom palliation for superior vena cava syndrome. Most chemotherapy regimens used in this setting can actually be infused at home with help of home infusion companies. So um, a one single course of chemo that would be effective for that particular tumor can be infused at home and could provide effective symptomatic palliation for superior vena cava syndrome. So I have a question here about spinal cord compression. The most common presentation and most appropriate treatment approaches. Um, spinal cord compression is very common and patients present with pain. Pain is the most common presenting symptom. So when we see a patient with bone meds, known spinal meds, and they present with back pain, spinal cord compression should be the first on our mind to, for diagnosis. Um, median time to diagnosis is about two months, and that is the cause of low levels of suspicion. We do not diagnose early enough. We suspect the diagnosis only when patients present with neuropathic symptoms, which is already too late as those neuro neurologic uh, deficits can become permanent. So as soon as the diagnosis is made, institute pain medications right away for pain management and corticosteroids should be the first treatment. Corticosteroids reduce the peritumoral edema and decompress the spinal cord. So and uh, as we discussed, the doses have not been established, so we can use doses of around 16 milligrams per day in divided doses or 96 to 100 milligrams per day in divided doses, uh, depending on the on clinician's um, comfort level with use of higher doses as well as the degree of neurologic impairment. As soon as corticosteroids have been instituted, plans should begin for definitive treatment. And definitive treatment needs to be based on the patient's prognosis, goals of care, and uh, eligibility to undergo different kinds of treatment. Radiation is a standard definitive treatment, and a single treatment of radiation could provide significant symptomatic relief in patients. Is chemotherapy an option for malignant spinal cord compression? Only in cases where malignant spinal cord compression is associated with highly chemosensitive tumors. The highly chemosensitive tumors include um, germ cell tumors, small cell cancers, and lymphomas. So when we have malignant spinal cord compression associated with any of these tumors, chemotherapy can be used as a definitive treatment modality. One or two cycles of chemotherapy could be effective in palliating symptoms. And again, chemotherapy can be administered as an outpatient, just one course or two course with help of infusion companies at home, which could be helpful in palliating symptoms. Next question is, does steroids help alleviate pain? Yes, in presence of malignant spinal cord compression, steroids can help alleviate the pain, and pain medications may not be necessary. Uh, however, until steroids take effect, it may, may be necessary to um, bridge that period with pain medications. What would you use for pain in the same patient? So for malignant spinal cord compression, pain medications um, can include the early use of opioids, morphine, or, or hydromorphone. NSAIDs are available, such as ibuprofen or Motrin, but they're usually not effective in reducing the pain adequately. Is aminocaphoic acid effective in controlling bleeding in patients with terminal hemorrhage? I have used aminocaphoic acid a few times in um, home hospice setting and it has been very effective in controlling superficial mucosal bleeding. 
Amino caproic acid can be given orally at, grand, at doses of 1 grams four times a day and has been effective in controlling simple bleeding as epistaxis, gum bleeding, mucosal bleeding, or even bleeding from superficial tumors and pelvic tumors. Can malignant hypercalcemia patients be managed at home is the question. So yes, malignant hypercalcemia patients can be very effectively managed in the home setting. Uh, initial treatment of hydration with normal saline, 2 to 4 liters, can be given at home, followed by diuretics. And uh, more definitive treatment with bisphosphonates, with pamidronate or zolidronate, can be administered at home as well. Solitronic acid is the most effective drug that is used in this setting. It is a quick infusion over 15 minutes and can be given at home and needs to be repeated only every month. So it can be, as long as patients are willing to get the infusion monthly at home, malignant hypercalcemia can be managed very effectively in the home setting. So I have a question here about malignant bowel obstruction. Is it necessary to use imaging studies to make a diagnosis of malignant bowel obstruction? Um, it is not. Malignant bowel obstruction can be a clinical diagnosis based on patient's known history, presence of intra-abdominal tumors, and presence of symptoms suggestive of malignant bowel obstruction. Symptoms usually include nausea, vomiting, and signs and examination of abdominal distension and uh, increased bowel sounds can all, be used to, uh, can all be used to establish a diagnosis and imaging studies are not necessary to make a diagnosis. I have a question asking to elaborate on a brief radiation course compared to prolonged radiation course for malignant spinal cord compression. Um, so the standard radiation therapy for malignant spinal cord compression it includes 10 treatments over a period of 10, 10 days. Each treatment is a couple of minutes of radiation in a 24-hour period. So a couple of minutes of treatment daily per span over a period of 10 days. Studies in the hospice and palliative care setting have shown that instead of the standard 10-day treatment, a single treatment or maybe two treatments over a period of two days can provide similar symptom palliation. So the symptomatic benefit in terms of recovery of ambulation, improved neurologic status, and improved pain are similar as compared to the protracted course of 10 treatments. So this is very helpful information for hospice and palliative care patients. Um, if, as they, that's largely, they need only symptom palliation and just one treatment, they just have to leave their home for one day to get five-minute treatment would provide effective symptom palliation for them and they don't have to be going for two weeks of treatment straight. So can you elaborate, the question is, can you elaborate on interdisciplinary team during oncologic emergencies? The interdisciplinary team during oncologic emergencies would consist of the physician, case manager, social worker, and has to incorporate the oncologist to make treatment recommendations. Um, we need to assess the goals of care, patients' ideas about what, they, what treatment would they be willing to go through, their overall reasonable performance status to see what they can go through, and oncologic recommendations for different modalities of treatment. Uh, treatment modalities have their own burdens, and we need to context and discuss with the interdisciplinary team what would be the most reasonable approach for this patient. Question again is, uh, do patients with malignant spinal cord compression have to leave home, go out to an inpatient hospice setting, or can they be managed at home? Uh, patients with malignant spinal cord compression can be managed at home for the initial management, including pain medications and pharmacologic treatment with corticosteroids to reduce the peritumal edema and provide some symptomatic relief in terms of neurologic symptoms. 
Uh, pain medications and steroids are only temporary way of managing spinal cord compression. More definitive treatment is radiation, which could be just one or two fractions. Patients can still be home as long as they can be just for a couple of hours to get one dose of radiation therapy, and that would be adequate for symptom palliation. They do not have to be in an inpatient setting for management. Outpatient one day of radiation and medications at home to include pain medications and corticosteroids would be effective management. Next question I have is about endovascular stenting for superior vena cava syndrome. How easily is it available? And uh, is it an outpatient or, a, or an inpatient procedure? Endovascular stenting for superior vena cava syndrome is an endoscopic outpatient procedure. It is available in most interventional radiology centers. It involves a couple of hours, patients going in, getting the endovascular stent placed, and once they recover, they can be discharged home the same day. Same goes for uh, endovascular self-expanding self metal stents that are used in malignant bowel obstruction. It is an outpatient procedure. Uh, patients are discharged home the same day. It is done in the endoscopic suite. Self-expanding metal stents are inserted endoscopically, and once they are effective, you see that there is passage of intestinal contents. Patients are discharged home the same day. These methods provide rapid symptomatic relief and are very effective and easy ways of managing symptoms for hospice and palliative care patients. Next question is, what would be an ideal method for implementing patient and family education? So direct one-on-one -on -one conversations with the members of the interdisciplinary team are the best way of incorporating education. Family can also be given reading materials. They can be provided with websites that provide detailed information about the diagnosis and management. Uh, but the best way is one-on-one -on -one conversations with multiple members of the interdisciplinary team. <laughs> Next question is, uh, what is the most effective medication used to reduce gastrointestinal secretions? Um, as we discussed in the talk, there are several medications available, but the most effective in my clinical practice or in my experience has been somatostatin analog of triodide. Octreotide can be used at doses of 100 milligrams three times a day, subcutaneous or IV, or it can be given as a continuous drip, um, <clears throat> continuous drip of about 10 to 20 micrograms per hour, and it is very effective in reducing gastrointestinal secretions. Other medications that are available, as we discussed in the talk, include scopolamine, hyacinamine, glycopyrrolate. But in my clinical um, experience, octreotide has been the most effective to this effect. Another medication that I found very helpful is dexamethasone. Uh, dexamethasone and haloperidol can be combined to be given as a continuous drug, and, this drug, and they are very effective in controlling the nausea. Corticosteroids are very effective in reducing secretions, peritumeral edema, as well as and, and they have an analgesic effect controlling the pain. So corticosteroid and haldol drips and octreotide drip in combination are very effective in managing malignant bowel obstruction. So we have a few more questions, but we are running out of time. Thank you very much uh, for attending this webinar. Uh, our next webinar is Caring for Holocaust Survivors with Sensitivity at End of Life, presented by Toby Weiss, Director of Cultural Sensitivity and Jewish Programming. Um, this webinar will happen on Thursday, June 2, 2016 at 12.30 p.m. Please remember to complete our webinar evaluations to help us plan our future sessions. Thank you.